Hey, welcome to Rockbridge. Uh, my name is Matt, one of the pastors on our team. want to welcome you. We're one church, six physical locations. Got some folks watching online as well. And then we're also in uh, two languages, English and, and Spanish. We're glad that you're here this, uh, this weekend. We're continuing our series called The Crown, navigating through all the chapters of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We're in uh, chapter 13 today, chapter 13 today. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn those on or open them up. Let me give a, a little bit of a review. Kind of, we, We've seen the emergence of King Saul, and he uh, has a victory in chapter 11, and, and this frequent mentions of the third, what we kind of call the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In chapter 12, which Zach covered last week, so appreciative of our team uh, uh, preaching and teaching and letting us hear from different communicators. And we saw the coronation of, uh, of Saul with warnings and promises. And then chapter 13, which is today, this weekend, we have, we're back to failure and, and despair. And, and I'm going to just kind of read you what happens, and then we're going to unpack that for just a minute. So in chapter 13, in, when we, once we get about to verse 13, Samuel says this to Saul. He says, it was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. And we're like, what happened? And what went wrong? <clears throat> and that, and that, that, honestly, that, that's a question you've asked in your life when you've experienced a, a consequence or a problem or an obstacle, what happened and what went wrong. What happened and what went wrong. And, and you know, I, I think we have a, a, like kind of a love-hate relationship when we, when we wrestle with that because there's part of us that's like, well, nobody's perfect. Uh, we've all got scars. We've all got mistakes. Uh, we're all, you know, you hear me say it all the time. We're all one decision away from stupid. And, and there's something like about saying those things that all of us can relate to because it's a common thing in humanity that we do make mistakes, that nobody's perfect. Uh, that we all need grace, we all need forgiveness, which is the hope that we have in, in Jesus Christ. But the, the question, that the way we want to look at it this weekend is this, what if we could learn from Saul so that we, we, we don't have to always learn the hard way? What, what if we don't have to always learn by pain and mistakes? What, what if we, we could say, hey, you know what, I, I, I want to learn. And I want to get God's wisdom. And, and I don't want to go down the path of losing God's best for my life. What if God in his grace and mercy through the Holy Spirit puts a chapter like chapter 13 full of failure and despair and the limitations of humanity. What if he puts that in the Bible so we can read it thousands of years after it occurred. And we could sit here under the authority that presents the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with humble hearts and say, you know what, I, I don't want to go down some paths. That I, I, I want to avoid some dead ends. I, I don't want to have to autopsy every relationship. I don't want to have to autopsy every, you know, my second marriage, my third marriage. I don't want to have to autopsy. I don't want to have another oops with my kids. I don't want to have to keep coming back and, and, and saying, God, forgive me. God, forgive me for the same besetting sins over and over again. So what if we just went into this text and said, God, something wrong happened. From this king of promise, this king of hope, something went seriously wrong. What if, God, you could meet us in that and we could learn from that? The Word of God, chapter 13, verse 1. 
Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. And that's kind of just like a little aside, and then we get into this actual situation that's brewing with the Philistines. Go figure, right? He chose 3,000 men for, from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash in Bethel's hill country, and 1,000 were with Jonathan, First mention of Jonathan, he'll be a major character. This is Saul's son, so he's kind of like the crown prince. So a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. So this is really, uh, militarily, this is a first in the history of Israel because now they kind of have a standing army. Previously, they would raise up men or raise up fighters when there was a threat, but now that we have a king, now that we're forming a functional government, now we have a standing army. And that's just really what it's describing. It says this, that he, Saul, sent the rest of the troops away, each to his own tent. And then the crown prince, Jonathan, attacked the Philistine garrison in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. Now, there's something we just kind of got to notice, because it's like, why isn't the king that Israel requested, why is he not initiating the battle? Why is he not initiating the attack? Because God had promised that through Saul that the, the, the Philistines would be defeated militarily. This, they're sitting on the promised land. So this is something God has promised to the people of Israel. <clears throat> now they haven't yet received or the fullness or the full reality of that promise. But why is Jonathan pressing the attack? Just a question. It just jumps out at us. So Saul... <coughs> in response to Jonathan's initiative, blew the ram's horn throughout the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now what we're going to unpack when we, and we're wrestling with this question, what happened, what went wrong, and what can we learn from what happened and what went wrong so we don't have to repeat some of the same mistakes. We're going to come up with four factors in, Paul, in Saul's demise, four things that are present, four actions or lack thereof that are present in the text that show us where, where Saul began to go south or things began to go wrong. And the first one is right here. We just read it. Jonathan attacked. Jonathan becomes the leader. Jonathan becomes the initiator. Jonathan is the one who says, hey, we have promises of God that have not yet been fulfilled in our lives, so we need to step out in faith and seize those promises in bold obedience. So the first problem is Saul is being spiritually passive. Saul is being spiritually passive. Now, we got to unpack that. we got to understand what does it mean to be spiritually passive. So one way of looking at it is in the New Testament is this, where we're told to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So God has done and is doing something, and we are to work that out. We are to cooperate <coughs> with God. So we have unrealized promises in our lives, and we should not be spiritually passive in, in, in seizing those and living into those. Another way of saying it is this. I think there's a lot of people in America, there's a lot of people in churches, there's a lot of people not in churches who would say, I believe in God. And, and you would say, hey, I believe in the God of the Bible, maybe. Or I believe in the facts of Easter. I believe Jesus. I believe in God. But if we're being spiritually passive, it stops here. 
If we're being spiritually active, we say, but I believe God. I believe God has given us this land, which means we're going to go attack the Philistines. I believe God when he says, I am his son or I am his daughter, therefore I, am, I cannot be touched by the condemnation of the enemy. I believe God when he says he has a plan for me. I believe God when he says he is my refuge and my strong tower. I just believe in God when I say God exists, but I'm alone, I'm fearful, I'm worried, I don't know who I am. See the difference? Spiritually active people don't just believe in God, they believe God. When God says something, when God gives something, when God promises something, they believe God. So you may not be a Christian. You may think you're a Christian because you grew up in the Bible Belt where it's really unpopular to believe, to not believe in God. But if you're just believing in God, that doesn't make you a Christian. The demons believe in God. You become a Christ follower when you believe God died on the cross for you. And that God paid the penalty for your sin. And God offers you his righteousness, his identity, his Holy Spirit, and a place in his eternal family. That's when you're believing God. And then you walk in that belief all the days of your life. Trusting in him. And you're spiritually active. So it sort of looks like this if we continue breaking, <coughs> breaking this down. Our life is meant to be lived in response to what God reveals. God reveals things. He reveals things in creation. Just, you don't have to have a Bible to know that our creation has design. Our creation has order to it. Our creation is, is perfectly, especially if you just study the science of earth and where we are in relation to the sun and the, the atmospherics and all of that. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to be a scientist really, but that our, our creation supports life. And those things begin to tell us some things about God. And then God gives us the Bible. That's God's revelation, and we live in response to his word. And then God gives us the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And we live in response to that. But the great temptation, and this is where it starts to go wrong. And listen, some of us tonight and this weekend at our churches and all of our church locations, some of us are going to hear a warning. Some of us are going to hear an explanation. And some of us, hopefully all of us, are going to hear an invitation. So here could be the warning, or here could be the explanation for what happened or could happen or what has gone wrong or could go wrong. When our situation seems greater, more powerful more than God's revelation. So when what you're dealing with, what you're facing, the Philistines, seems greater than what God has said, you will become spiritually passive, just like Saul. I can't go out and fight the Philistines. And we'll look at, they're a military superpower. But Saul, you've got revelation from God that you are here on planet Earth taking up God's oxygen to lead his people against the Philistines. Step out in faith, brother. No, right? That's an explanation. That's a warning to Matt Evans. That's a warning to everybody. When my situation, and I don't know everybody's situation here, 
But when it seems bigger than what God has said, what God has revealed in his word and his gospel and his creation, we're on a path to going down the wrong path. And then my situation determines my reaction. Right? So not God's revelation determining my reaction, but then my situation. Because I've got to deal with my situation, and I don't know what God said or what God's done. I just forget about God a little bit. Those are warning signs for us. Now, so Jonathan kind of attacks this garrison of the Philistines, and, and, and word begins to spread. <coughs> it, first, it spreads through Israel, and it says Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison, and Israel is now repulsive. Some translations use the word an abomination to the Philistines. So, little side note, it seems like Saul takes credit for it. That's going to become a repetitive theme over the next couple of weeks in the crown series. Saul kind of puts himself, really Jonathan attacked him, but he'll, he'll take credit for it. We'll get there and talk more about that. But Israel has now become repulsive to the Philistines. Here's what that means. As long as Israel was passive, as long as Israel was sort of just like making peace, keeping peace, doing anything to not provoke the, the Philistines, the Philistines were okay with them living there. But now they've become repulsive. Now they've become an abomination. Now they've become a problem. So then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal, and the Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel. 3,000 chariots, they had gotten iron from the, from the Greeks, from the Mediterranean. 6,000 horsemen, troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, it's interesting that the author puts that in there because God had made a promise to Israel and actually to Moses, excuse me, not to Moses, to Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, that your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That was the blessing, the Abrahamic blessing that God gave, that through the blessing of Abraham, which results in the giving of the Messiah and all of those things that are powerful and wonderful and amazing. But the, tech, the author says, no, that's true, the Philistines, because God's people aren't living up to their potential because they're spiritually passive through the passivity of their leader. It continues, though. It says they went... They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Haven. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. What has the weight in the story? Does God's word, does God's revelation? No, it's all the situation. It's all what we're facing. It's all what we're dealing with. And, and, and God, we're not even looking at God. They're on the wrong path because of Saul. They hid in the caves and the thickets among rocks and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilead, or <coughs> excuse me, in Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. Now, here's what this shows is the second mistake is this. As long as Israel was passive, the Philistines didn't care. They didn't even, they didn't want, it was not even worth a fight. What Israel had done under, Paul, under Saul's leadership is they settled for a false peace instead of full victory. You know, sometimes it's easier to make peace with the devil than pursue the victory the Lord gives. But that's what they did. They settled for a false peace. The false peace was nobody's attacking us. The false peace is, hey, we're not at war right now. But we're not fully obedient to God. We're not realizing our potential of what God has promised and what God has given. 
And see, we can miss God because most of us, if we're not careful and if we're discipled by our culture instead of by the revelation of God's word, most of us, this is what we want. We want the false peace of money. We want the false peace of prosperity. We want the false peace of health. We want the false peace that we'll all get to live to a certain age. We want the false peace of, of popularity, of likes on Facebook, likes on social media, instead of the full victory of God. And then Jesus comes along and just totally upends that false peace. Because here's what it says about Jesus. Jesus said this about himself. He says, don't imagine that I came to bring peace on earth. But no, 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 no. What about all those Christmas carols, Matt? No, 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 but he's the prince of peace. He says, I came not to bring peace but a sword. So hear me right now. Hear me right now. God loves us too much. Hear me. God will absolutely disturb our false peace to move us toward full victory in Christ. God will move and disrupt. If you think it's God's job, you know, to keep your money here, to keep everybody liking you, or to keep trouble from you, and, and your peace is solely based on nothing bad will ever happen to me, and that means God is good, that's a false peace. That is a false peace. And Israel, under Saul's passivity, was fine. But Jonathan has the courage and the gumption to take the fight to the enemy. The enemy now gets aroused, and there's going to be a real battle and a real fight. <coughs> and Israel's scared to death because they had grown accustomed to false peace, superficial contentment. Every one of us here tonight, this weekend, should ask this question. How secure is my joy? How secure is my peace? If it depends totally on your circumstances, we are all one text message, one phone call away from, being, from hiding in caves. But if our peace is from the true Prince of Peace, nobody can touch it. Nobody can take it away. And God loves us too much to let us settle for false peace. So Saul is like wondering what to do. So he had a command from Samuel, who's the prophet, and it was to wait for him for seven days. So he waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set. <coughs> and we see that in 1 Samuel 10, 8. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting Saul. So he's like, got faith with the battle, and his, and his men are leaving. So Saul said... Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. Now, that looks really religious. That looks really spiritual. That looks like Paul's being the, I mean, excuse me, Saul's being the spiritual leader of Israel. The problem is Saul is the king. He's not the priest. So now he has usurped his authority. He has taken matters into his own hands to deal with this situation. So what has Saul reverted to? Saul, this third mistake, has reverted to self-reliance. He trusts in himself, okay? Now, now here, here's what we need to notice. If we're, re, we're, we're working through the book of 1 Samuel, chrono, uh, chapter at a time, in chapter 11, when we had victory, the Holy Spirit was the prime mover of the story. There is no mention of the Holy Spirit at all in chapter 13. What does that tell us? Saul is not being spirit-led or spirit-driven. Saul is totally self-reliant. One of my kind of historical mentors, A.W. Tozer, makes it, I'll paraphrase. He says, this is the great obstacle 
of living the full life in Christ, we trust too much in ourselves. We trust too much in ourselves. So Saul lets his circumstantial realities become greater than the spiritual ones. And that puts him in a, in, a, in a dangerous path of going down the path of what happened, what went wrong. You trusted in yourself. You took matters into your own hands. You didn't lean not on your, you leaned not on your, you didn't lean on God's word. You leaned on your own understanding. So you began to presume upon your perspective, your power, and your preferences. And you offered an unauthorized sacrifice to a holy God who, who doesn't compromise. <coughs> now, enmeshed in that, there's a question, excuse me, <coughs> there's a question that bubbles up. And we've all dealt with it. It's God's timing. Samuel, you were supposed to be here by now. God, you were supposed to have answered my prayer by now. God, you were supposed to have shown up by now. <coughs> so how do we deal with that? And how do we reconcile ourselves to that? We get a little hint from Jesus, right, in Matthew 7. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So when we're waiting on God, here's two things. First one is this, do the will of God you know. Do the will of God you know. So Saul, are you doing the will of God you know? No, you're not. You're taking matters into your own hands. You're offering a sacrifice that you are not authorized to offer. And then once you, here's the, here's the key though, once you do the will of God you do know, it helps you discern the will of God you don't know. But Saul can't wait. And he is self-reliant. So he doesn't make the effort to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He just takes matters into his own hands. So listen, you and I will go down the path that will lead us to the what happened, what went wrong questions that we started our conversation this weekend about. If we get impatient with the Lord and take matters into our own hands and disobey what we do know, what we do know. And, and we see that in the story because it says just as he finished the offering, Samuel shows up. So Saul goes out to greet him like nothing's wrong because he's got a blind spot, right? Hey, I just did what I thought was best. Keyword, what you thought was best, right? And Samuel says, what have you done? And look how many first-person pronouns get used in the next couple of sentences. Saul answered, he said, when I saw that the troops were deserting me, and you didn't come within the appointed days, and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought, the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor, so I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. It's kind of like when you tell your teacher the dog ate your homework or something, right? I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? But notice how many times he says I or me or myself. And even in, this doesn't show up in the English, but this word you in Hebrew is emphatic. Meaning it's like, and you didn't show up. So what is he doing? Pointing the finger. He's sinned. But he's not admitting it. And here's the fourth problem. And this is probably the biggest one. So many times we want our sin to be excused instead of forgiven. 
You ever find yourself talking to God or not talking to God? You're talking to your parents, talking to your spouse, talking to the members of your small group, and, and you've sinned, and, and they know you've sinned. But you kind of have reasons. You might even want to, but, but honey, you. But they, but those people, but my boss. And you make yourself feel better with your excuses. And the question is, do we want to have our sin excused? Or we do want to have our sin forgiven. Now, now listen, listen. Before I before I move forward, I want to uh, uh, lean in with me. Everybody listening to me right now, including me speaking through this microphone, has and most likely will make mistake one, mistake two, and mistake three. It doesn't become a dead end. It doesn't become an abject disaster until we start excusing our sins instead of confessing them to receive forgiveness. Because you could easily, listen, listen, you could easily take this message and beat yourself up. And I, that, that is not my heart, and that is not the heart of God. You could easily take this message and, and put a legalistic burden on your soul that you are not designed to carry. Like one, two, three, four, our checklist. But there is grace here. And there is grace and power in the story. So listen. The problem of Saul is he tried to always excuse and blame his sins instead of seeking forgiveness for his sins. And we're going to get to this guy named David. He had an affair. He killed a man. He did not lead his family well after a horrific incident with his daughter. We'll get there. You got to come back for it. It's so good, right? <laughs> but he repented fast. So a couple of things under this <clears throat> fourth and kind of fatal mistake. Circumstances do not cause us to sin. We choose to sin. Let's do a little marriage enrichment. Let's do some marriage enrichment. Marriage enrichment, right? I didn't know I was going to get married. Hey, here we go. Ready? Your spouse does not cause you to sin. Your boss does not cause you to sin. Your parents do not cause you to sin. Our government does not cause you to sin. The guy driving 35 in the 55 does not cause you to sin. 
They're an occasion for your sin, but not the cause. We choose to sin. God calls us to fight sin no matter the extenuating circumstance. The fight in chapter 13, the fight that we'll get to against Goliath, it's really not a military fight. It's a fight to trust God. It's a fight to not just believe in God, but to believe God. So, look, there, there's people here that have, that have or are battling disease. There's people here who are battling you know, terrible inflation and what it's doing to your job or the economy. There's people here in all kinds of fights. Don't, that, that's the, that's, that, the fight is to believe God and not let your circumstance outweigh who God is, what God has revealed, and what God has promised. <coughs> Hear me now. God's will is for none of us to be, quote, victims of circumstance. And there is a lot of people that we just want to, we're just, we settle victims of something. Well, you don't know what's, hap- what's happened to me. Well, you don't know what I've been through. Well, Samuel, if you had just done your job, Well, Samuel, I'm facing the Philistines, and they're deserting me. My guys are leaving me. You're a victim. God's will for God's people is overwhelming victory in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not feel that. You may not even be experiencing that. But you are called to be a Jonathan and go fight for that. Because God has promised and provided that through the blood of his very own son, Jesus. No victims. Believers. When we seek to be excused from sin, we miss the grace God has offered to cover our sin. The greatest thing God has ever given us is not a hundred-year life. The greatest thing God has ever given us is not the promotion, the job. The greatest thing God has given us is Jesus Christ. You cannot get to Jesus Christ until you get before the Lord and drop the excuses and say, Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the great victory comes when we humble ourselves and position ourselves to receive the grace, the blood of Jesus that covers sin. Psalm 32, 5, finally I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. So if we, you were to say, what, what was Saul's fatal mistake? Was it that he hid behind the, 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 the supplies? Was it he was insecure and somewhat narcissistic? What was, 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 was Saul's fatal mistake that, you know, he let Jonathan take the lead and he was spiritually passive? 
We've all been doing that. We've all done that. Saul's fatal mistake is he just didn't come to the Lord and say, God, I'm done hiding. I just confess my rebellion. Because when we confess our sin instead of excuse our sin, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that's why God gave us a reminder called the Lord's Supper. Because Jesus knew we would tend to forget. Jesus knew we would tend to minimize. Jesus knew we would want to become an excuser. And so he said, listen, I want you to do something often until I come back. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. To remind yourself to confess your sin. So God can cover your sin. And so we can press on as victors in the Lord Jesus Christ. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. In the same manner, after supper, he took also the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. To do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So listen, don't, no, no one take communion yet. I, I'll give you a, I'm going to say amen at that point. There'll be some music and, and you feel free to take communion. You feel free to pray. But I want to I, I ask everyone to do this. Listen, if you are not a Christian, I just ask you to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. This is really, for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. Doesn't mean we're better than anybody. It just means we have surrendered and given Christ our sins and the steering wheel of our lives as best we know how. Some of you are right now ready to become Christians and Christ followers. And it is a simple step of faith saying, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I don't just believe in you. I believe you. I believe you are the way, the truth, and the life. I believe you paid the penalty for my sin. I believe you are the hope of my soul. I, I want you to direct, lie, lead, and guide my life. If you've said that in your heart and believe that by faith, you're a Christ follower. Take communion first time, great. Then get baptized and be obedient and become a disciple of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. But for everybody here, before you take communion, have some confession. Just you and the Lord. Because there is nobody here That's perfect. We're all a work in progress. And as we said a few weeks ago, God works with what he's got. And he's got us. His mercy and grace are bigger than this, bigger than us. The price Jesus paid is bigger than the mess I've made, the mess you've made. So before you take the bread and drink of the cup, spend a little bit of time confessing your sins and saying, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. I received the grace of the blood of yourself. We pray together. God, I thank you for everybody here tonight. Nobody's here this weekend, this evening. Nobody's here online in English or Spanish. Nobody's here by accident. God, I pray no one will leave this room as a victim of a circumstance, but rather a victor in Christ. That the revelation of your word, the revelation of your glory in the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
is greater than our situation, greater than our circumstance, greater than any mistake, mess, or sin we have made. So God, we are humble before you, and before we take the Lord's Supper, we want to give you our sins. We want to confess our sins. So God, I'm going to say amen, and we're just going to let it be quiet with some music for a moment or two, and we're going to, give, we're going to confess, God. We're going to repent, God. If we're not ready to do that or we're wrestling with something, we'll just refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. God, there's nothing wrong with that because we want to be right with you through confession and repentance, through uh, the forgiveness and the grace you offer. So God, just have your way in our hearts. And I thank you, God. I thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. I thank you for your love and for your mercy. And I pray, God, that as we obey you by partaking of your body, your blood, doing this in remembrance of you, that we truly remember what you did on the cross and that we bring our sin to you and leave it there where it is fully, 100% paid for so we walk in freedom and we walk in victory as followers of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ, whose name we pray, amen.